This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. We're we're often given an expectation in American society that somehow we should have lives entirely free of grief and loss, and that to experience grief and loss is some kind of a failure or uh, some kind of a shock. Uh, Most people in other parts of the world don't have this kind of expectation, but uh, our society seems to continually be giving us a bait and switch on, on our expectations about what sort of things we should somehow expect to avoid in this life. And, and despite the fact that the Bible is pretty clear that we will encounter periods of, of grief and loss in our lives, uh, we're not often not well equipped to deal with them, especially as men. In my experience, men often perceive that to talk openly about experiences of grief and loss is to display weakness. Uh, I don't know if that's as true now as it was uh, years ago. I think in recent decades that's changed somewhat uh, for the better. But certainly growing up as I did in the Midwest, uh, uh, South Dakota and Iowa, you you didn't talk openly, you certainly didn't emote openly about grief and loss as a man, lest you be perceived as weak in some capacity, as needy in some capacity. So I, I think there's a real problem there. Uh, and and perhaps you can agree with me or not. Uh, We can talk about that when we get to the point. Uh, But for the same reason, I think that for for that reason, it's oftentimes, uh, there's oftentimes a lack of a social space for men to talk about these things together. Um, You see women getting together in groups, talking openly about the things they're struggling with, crying together, you know, and I always feel a little envious. uh, Although, uh, to a point. (laughs) But, uh, but, but I do think uh, that kind of connective tissue, socially and relationally, for men in our society is, is missing oftentimes. And so I'm hoping that actually this can be a context in which we can at least do some measure of that. It's awfully hard with 40 guys, right, to, to go too deep, but um, at least uh, say a few things that are gonna move us in the right direction. So what kinds of loss do we suffer in life? And I think there are a variety of of losses and they affect us in different ways. So uh, the loss of a loved one, that's what I'm gonna be focusing on mainly this morning. That's usually at the head of the list. If we've experienced the loss of uh, the death, uh, specifically of a family member, a child, a spouse, a parent, a sibling, uh, this can just be, and usually is, dramatically life-changing and crushing. Uh, for us. And if you've experienced that, then you know what I'm talking about. Um, it, it can shatter our lives and really uh, leave us never the same in some pretty dramatic ways. So how do we come to terms with that kind of loss? Uh, another kind of loss is a loss of a relationship. Uh, probably the most common one that we're talking about in our society is the loss of a marriage, um, divorce, right? And so the kinds of loss we experience there are a sense of failure, a sense of rejection, a sense of uh, right that, that having been torn away from us somehow, whether maybe we wanted it, maybe we didn't, but even if we did want it for some reason, it's still a loss. A third thing I think, especially for men, can be a loss of a job, a job that you've been deeply invested in, a job that's become a really 
uh, important part of your life that's, that's brought satisfaction, that's brought joy, delight, creativity, and somehow that, that job is, is taken away. Maybe you left because it was toxic and you needed to leave, or maybe you were let go for one reason or another. But whatever the cause, uh, that, that loss can really be devastating for many men. I've, I've seen many men, especially older men, who've retired from a job that meant a lot to them. They, they knew it was time to retire, and yet the loss of that job was profoundly challenging for them to deal with. And then uh, another one is health. I went through, uh, I found out at the age of 54, I had to have a total hip replacement a year and a half ago. And, uh, and I've really felt the diminishment of myself uh, as a consequence of having that. I can't run anymore. I literally am not supposed to run again. Well, I, I ran a four and a half minute mile when I was a senior in high school. I ran 20 miles a week for decades, which is probably why I had to have the surgery, right? Uh, nonetheless, uh, that's a huge loss for me. And I've, I've re I really struggled for a better part of a year in kind of coming to terms with that. Well, how many of you have suffered losses of this sort? Any, any of the above? Yeah, quite a few of us, right? And there may be other losses you've experienced that I haven't described, but I think all of these can profoundly impact our lives and, um, and, and, and present challenges to us in how we, um, how we make sense of the life we now have to live, right? Or now are called to live. And I think what's common to all of these is that what we've lost is a part of ourselves, right? It's that part of us we've invested deeply in that thing, whatever that person or relationship or job, whatever it was, or sense of self, we've lost that. It's a part of us that is no longer a part of us, right? And how do we come to terms with that? So I want to share my experience, my, my, my most profound experience of loss. Um, so July 12, 1988, I found myself standing in the morgue of a hospital in the western suburbs of Chicago looking at the body of my deceased wife, my first wife. I was 25 years old. I met Sherry, uh, Sherry Nystrom, uh, the spring of 1984, uh, five-foot blonde, a very cute, vivacious young woman, and uh, didn't take long to, to fall in love. And, and miraculously, her feelings were mutual. <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, she was 18 and I was 21, so a little bit of uh, upper class cradle robbing going on there. Uh, but uh, it was, it was a, the real deal. And we uh, were married two, two years later at the ripe old ages of 23 and 20. I don't recommend that, <laughs> just in case you're still that young. Um, we fought uh, like cats and dogs, and we made up like cats and dogs, if you know what I'm saying. So uh, that was not a bad thing. Uh, and life was great. We were in love. We were young, and all that that entails. And then um, in the spring of 1986, uh, sorry, spring of, uh, spring of 1986, we were married. Spring of 1988, we discovered we are going to have a baby. Um, uh, as it turns out, conception date probably around March 25th, due date December 25th, which as an Anglican theologian, uh, kind of, I've never quite known what to make of that, but um, there you have it. So, but on the morning of July 12th, 1988, she was struck by a truck while commuting 
to teach some music lessons. She was a, a musician and she was killed instantly. So my life as I knew it at that moment came to an end. And in many ways, I, I still feel to this day that I died. Uh, um, I didn't literally die, of course, but um, the experience I had was entering into the valley of the shadow of death. I don't know how else to describe that. These things are beyond our understanding, really, ultimately. But I felt that uh, half of me had been amputated, right? That I was kind of half alive, like some kind of undead shambling through the world. Um, and my experience is one of just being completely broken by that. Uh, Sherry was my life. I think in many ways she was more my life than anything else, including the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, we had a future. We were expecting a child. We were building a life together. We were planning for the future. We were planning both consciously and unconsciously, right? We were assuming life stretching out before us, right? Decade upon decade. And that was all gone. It was all broken into pieces and destroyed. And I was broken by it. I cried myself to sleep every night. I cried myself awake every morning for about 10 months or more. Just constant grief, constant pouring out of what seemed like an endless river of grief um, that I really thought would never end. I wondered how it could possibly ever come to an end. And uh, I grabbed hold of Jesus Christ with all my heart, with all my strength. I had no other way of knowing how to survive that time than to cry out to the Lord Jesus uh, constantly. And I just remember nights just saying the name of Jesus over and over again as I wept, um, trying to find a reason for living. And the remarkable thing was that Jesus was there. Jesus was with me, and I, I don't know how to describe that better than that. Um, these things, this is my own subjective experience. I know plenty of Christians who've had very much a different experience than that, who felt that God was entirely absent from them. But um, somehow uh, that was not my experience, and we can talk about that as well, um, the sense of God's absence in our suffering, right? But I was, uh, I remember the moment I was, I was reading Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And that passage had become profoundly important to me. I was meditating on it. And I was also listening to uh, some hymns, a collection of hymns. And the hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, came on the, the, the uh, CD player. Sorry. Jonathan's into vinyl, so I'm that was sorry. That, see, that's my ADD kicking in, right? Uh, and, and I just had such a profound impression of the Lord's presence with me in that moment of, and realizing that if Jesus had borne all our griefs and carried our sorrows, then it meant that Jesus had borne my griefs and carried my sorrows, and not just generically, but those very griefs and sorrows that I was knowing and going through at that time. And that gave me such, uh, I don't know if the word is comfort, but certainly a sense of Jesus being my companion in suffering, Jesus being my companion in grief. And somehow my 
suffering, being caught up into his suffering as the incarnate God for the sake of a fallen and suffering world. And so the cross came to me came to mean something to me that I had never really understood before. I had grown up as a kid in the church, and I knew Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins, and that seemed like a good deal, you know. Uh, but now it meant something uh, exponentially doesn't suffice, you know, categorically greater. That Jesus had entered into the very depth of our lostness and brokenness and suffering as a race and he grabbed hold of it, and he'd taken it upon himself as the incarnate God. Uh, that, uh, that, that saved me, really, it saved me. Jesus saved my life. Um, I, 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 I don't exaggerate when I say I do not think, had it not been for that, that I would be standing here talking to you today. The depth of my loss and grief and sense of meaninglessness and absurdity of life uh, was was such that I think I would have found a way to end my life had um, had the Lord not saved my life. So um, I found I could pour out my grief to Jesus. I learned as well some things about myself, how much I had taken all of this for granted, how much I had assumed that all the wonderful things I had were naturally, of course, ought to be mine, that somehow I was intrinsically deserving of all the blessings of the life I had had and discovered how much I had assumed about that. And so I found myself having a wonder at life and, and just this, right, uh, that I'd never had before. Um, and I discovered a new reason for living, uh, and that was to follow the Lord Jesus and to serve him. With the rest of my life, I had never had any interest in being a pastor at, uh, at that time, prior to that. But the church came around me. Many, many loving people came around me and, and poured out love to me. And that was the other piece of the slow process of slowly emerging out of the valley of the shadow of death. So I, I found myself having grown through the experience in incredibly painful and yet real ways of discovering new ways of seeing myself and of seeing the world, many of which were more mature by far than I had, had been uh, you know, a year prior. At the same time, uh, as Frodo says, St. Frodo of the Shire, <laughs> it will never really heal. Frodo says at the end of The Lord of the Rings. He's been wounded by the Morgul knife that was working its way towards his heart. He's borne this weight of the burden of the ring on behalf of Middle-earth and been permanently changed by it. And he knows and he realizes in his bones that the only healing ultimately that he will receive is that which comes when he crosses to the equivalent of heaven in Middle-earth, and only there will he actually ultimately receive the healing. And that is just true. <laughs> that is just the truth. I, I have experienced healing, but I've got massive scar tissue from what I went through. I've got PTSD. If my da daughters or wife haven't 
been in touch with me and they're running late, I will decompensate into the fetal position on the floor. And I have literally been there when I haven't been able to reach my family. I can never go back to the person I was before. And this whole myth of moving on, right, from this kind of loss, whether it's what I went through or some other, it's just a myth, right? You don't move on. You find a way to incorporate it into your life and learn to live in a new way that includes it, and God willing, growth and beauty can come from it. But this idea that somehow this part of ourselves, this incredibly central, important part of ourselves, we're going to somehow cut off and move on from, that's just not even human. That's almost like a mechanistic understanding of what it means to be human. So loss. Loss leaves a hole in our world, right? It leaves uh, a sense of amputation, of a loss of ourselves, of a of a profound diminishment. And I think the greater the love, the greater the loss, right? The greater the love, the greater the loss. It's, there's proportion to it. Some losses are relatively small and, and they're painful, but we're, we're, we're more capable of incorporating them into our lives and moving on, in, not moving on, but you know, uh, living on in a, in a new way. But some losses just break us, right? They just destroy us. And they lead to a profound disorientation. The world doesn't mean what it used to mean. We see the world through eyes now that see it differently. And so loss makes us feel lost, right? That's what loss does. It makes us feel lost. Lost in the world, we might oftentimes lose a sense of ourselves. We don't even know who we are anymore in the wake of this sort of experience. Many Christians find that they lose sight of God in seasons of loss and grief and often question his goodness. And I I don't think we can back away from that at all, right? We've got to embrace that because that's part of the God-forsakenness, as it were, of fallen humanity, right? But many Christians also attest to the importance of their faith in Jesus Christ as a key to helping them to, to endure grief and loss. So what I want to do in the next remaining minutes is to do some crowdsourcing with you guys. I'm not going to ask any of you to uh, divulge anything too personal in this setting. But I want to talk about patterns of response to grief and loss, some of which are not helpful and others of which I think are profoundly helpful. And, uh, and I want to call on you to engage in some of that. So let's first talk about emotional responses to grief and loss that were places we're tempted to go, Right? Tempted to go that if we stay there may not ultimately be that good for us, right? What are some responses that we naturally find ourselves having uh, as a result of loss in our lives? Especially in in regards to our faith, but just in general. I know there's some of you here have a lot of expertise in this, so feel free to lead out. Yeah. Go ahead. Self-pity. That's one. That's one form of, yeah, withdrawal. withdrawal. Okay, that's, that's key. That's more of a response than an emotion, but, I mean, that's, that's, that's good. We'll talk about that in a minute, yeah. Anger. anger, right. Very natural response to pain of any kind is anger, right? What else? Fear, fear right? For me, that's been the biggest one. Fear of some kind of similarly cataclysmic event coming along and wrecking my life again 
And along with that comes, uh, what else? Depression. Depression, right? That's a very common one, right? Uh, that's a huge one, and I've, I've struggled with that quite a bit as well. Anything else? All right. Yeah, I think all of these are there. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes we refer to depression as despair, I think. That's the older word for depression. Well, not quite. Despair and, and melancholy are not quite the same thing. But what's that? Despondency. Despondency, right. So fear, fear of more loss, a, a fear of the world. Maybe we had a sense of a confidence in the way we intersect the world, and now suddenly we're fearful of the world, right? We don't trust the world. It's like we stepped in the ice and it broke. We're not going to step in the ice again, right? We're not going to put the weight of our being on the world again because it might break underneath us, right? Uh, fear of death, ultimately, I think. Uh, I think also, this not one we mentioned, but I think it's included in the mix, is doubt. Doubt of God's love for us. Right? Doubt of the goodness of God. Doubt in the, the goodness of the world. Uh, anger. Uh, with, with a loss of trust in God's goodness can come anger. Or if someone else has been responsible for our for our loss, then of course, anger at them as well, right? Uh, in my case, I found that despair, right, or despondency was, your phone's ringing, but it stopped. Uh, whatever, I, I, too, I don't have time for that. Uh, despair, despair at finding meaning in life, right? There's a temptation, a self-piteous sometimes temptation to become fatalistic and say, well, it, it's all screwed anyway, right? It's all meaningless anyway, right? Uh, despair of ever finding joy or happiness again in life. So then what are some responses? So we, we have these experiences of, of emotional reactions. What are some of the, then the, the, the decisions we make? Withdrawal was one of them. What's another? What's that? Paralysis, right? You gotta get stuck. Overwork. So what's what's the what's overwork trying to do? Distract. Distract, or I would say deny. Right? Denial. Right. So we find these ways of of interjecting other things into our lives that allow us to not think about that thing. It's a form of denial. Right. What else? Withdrawal from what? What are we withdrawing from? Don't want to talk to anybody. Withdraw from the world, withdraw from relationships, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, oftentimes we'll find a real cynicism, skepticism, depression. You'll see this often in people who've grown up in abusive contexts of any kind, a real cynicism toward the world, a real cynicism toward relationships or people. And, uh, and it's, a defensive, it's a defensive mechanism, right? If, you're, if you always expect it to suck, <laughs> Then, then you're you're not wrong when it does, right? <laughs> uh, well, that's a that's a form of, of of protection, but is that a helpful place to be? And ultimately, a kind of a turning inward. And so, what this response, if we stay there, now I think it's really hard not to go there for some period of time, in periods of great grief and loss. But if we stay there, then. We become turned inward on ourselves. This is a, a, a 
this is an image in, in medieval spirituality that, and, and, and patristic spirituality of the, of the self turned inward upon itself. I won't bore you with the Latin term, but it's, it's a kind of a posture of human existence in which we turn in on ourselves. We, we as it were, get lost in our own shadow, right? right? We turn our back on God and the world and turn inward on ourselves. And this is profoundly uh, unhealthy for us, profoundly dangerous for us spiritually, but also relationally and emotionally. This turning inward, right? So cutting ourselves off from the good things in the world, cutting ourselves off from life-giving relationships, right? Cutting ourselves off from taking good risks, right? Taking more risks because life is risk, uh, or always entails risk. Ultimately, cutting ourselves off from God. And I imagine we all know people who are like this, uh, somebody in our lives, or maybe we're finding ourselves there as well. So, so the title of this talk is Facing Loss and Grief in Jesus Christ. And I chose that for a reason, because the call that's been given to us as Christians, as members of Christ's body and Christ's family, is actually not to stay in that curved in on ourselves place, but to stand and turn and face God, face reality, face life, face the world with Jesus. Um, and so I wanna talk a little bit about that and then I'm gonna open it up for Q&A. How do we face loss and grief in Jesus Christ? And I, I, I hinted at some of these things when I was telling my story, but there are these deep, rich moments in Scripture that reveal something about the nature of God's compassion towards those who suffer that I think can be anchors for us. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Right? So there's an affirmation that the suffering servant who is our Lord Jesus is not only kind of generically suffering, <laughs> on behalf of the world, but actually knows our particular suffering and is with us personally in our suffering. This is absolutely central, uh, at least it has been for me. Right? Uh, I think sometimes we think God is so busy with all of this, right? But if God's truly God, then he is just as present to every particular iota of reality as he is to the entirety of it, and that includes to us personally. Right? God is present to us personally. And if on the cross Jesus has borne our griefs, the griefs and sorrows of the world, that means he's, he knows and has borne somehow your grief and your sorrow. And that means that you are not alone in that grief, right? But that the Lord Jesus is with you in that. This is just absolutely essential that our theology of suffering be, be based upon this understanding of the presence of the suffering Jesus, our great high priest who's been tested in every way as we've been tested, says Hebrews 4, and is not unable to sympathize. That Greek word sympathize means to suffer with, right? Sympatheo, right? Right, Grant? Is that correct? Thank you. Bishop Grant, a.k.a. New Testament Ph.D. Uh, always comes in handy to have one in the crowd. Right. 
But for me, uh, Psalm 23, which I memorized in the King James as a boy and never really, you know, it's like, uh, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Right? Wow. Uh, that, that psalm that had been so resident in my memory since, a ch- since childhood, that, that, that passage took on such meaning for me uh, in the context of my loss. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can fear no evil for Jesus, the good shepherd, is with us. Um, and then, of course, Jesus promises his disciples that he is with us always even to the end of the age. These sound like throwaway lines until you're in the valley of the shadow of death, right? And suddenly they mean something they never meant for you before. So this means that we then can bring our loss and grief to God through Jesus Christ. And I think this is absolutely critical. Uh, Instead of letting that loss and grief fester, Uh, we can continually pour it out before God in the presence, uh, through the person of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, This was what my experience, just a constant pouring out of my grief to God in prayer. My grief became a form of prayer, right? And I think of how Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, God doesn't ultimately forsake him, but Jesus is articulating the cry of all our hearts, right? On our behalf, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Note, Jesus is addressing God, right? He hasn't turned his back on his father, right? He's still complaining, he's still calling out. And throughout the Psalms, we see this continuous repetition. How long, O Lord, right? How long, O Lord, must we endure this that you've given to us? So we have this precedent in the Bible of crying out to God, of laying our cares and our sorrows and even our complaints, our anger at the feet of God. I think sometimes we've been raised with a view of God that God is so sovereign or whatever, uh, so, so transcendent that we can't yell at him about things, right? But that is not what we see in Scripture. We see people grieving the presence of God, people shouting at God in anger and in fear. Well, 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Casting our cares upon the Lord. I think this is uh, critical. And so this takes us in the opposite direction, you see, of this natural inclination. Instead of turning inward, shutting down, cutting ourselves off, even though it's in grief and pain and anger, we're turning and facing God, right? We're saying, you did this to me. Now, you're responsible to clean up your mess, right? And God does do it. He comes into the world in Jesus Christ and gets busy cleaning up the mess, right? Um, We can talk about our theodicy and problem of evil later, right? Um, I I think this is profoundly important because because it engages our grief, it engages our sorrow, but it turns us toward God as we do, right? So instead of turning to my, you know, uh, I don't know, Jameson, <laughs> what's your preferred option, right? Uh, is it the bottle? Is it, is it the, the hookah or whatever, right? <laughs> whatever substance you're going to, or, or, or escape to numb out and try to pretend that this thing didn't happen to you, right? Whatever drug of choice you might prefer, it's going to help you escape from the pain that way. 
Is that going to solve it? Is that going to help you move, move into a different place? No, it's not. Um, so uh, this is critical. That's, that's piece one. To me, that's move number one. Take that pain and loss and turn it back and pour it out in the presence of God. The second thing is the hope that we have in Christ, right? The hope of the resurrection. So ultimately, loss and grief are reminders of our mortality, right? Of our impending death. And the fear we're tempted to succumb to is ultimately the fear of everything being taken away in some way. And so the question is this, will we allow this path of loss and grief to imprison us in withdrawal and isolation or will we entrust our lives to God because our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ? Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, we do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Right? How can we endure such loss without hope? Right? If you don't have hope, in the Lord Jesus. If you don't have hope in something, you're not going to survive. Uh, why, I think, do we see the incredible stats on people dying of opioid overdoses right now in this society? Because our society as a whole is losing hope. As a society, I'm convinced we're losing sight of God, we're losing sight of transcendent meaning in our society, and as a consequence, we are losing hope as a society. And we're seeing the, in, the consequences in those who don't have otherwise the resources to find a way to make it through, even though they have no hope. Right? In my experience, had I not had the hope of God in Jesus Christ, I, don't, I honestly don't know how I would have made it. Now, maybe, maybe, maybe there are those few individuals that are so remarkably strong in themselves that they are, they are truly self-sufficient in enabling and being able to move forward. Or maybe they have such a wonderful network of healthy relationships, right? Um, wasn't that I didn't have the latter, but uh, for me it was, uh, uh, it was my hope in the resurrection. Our ultimate hope, therefore, is not in our own strength. I think that, again, is the masculine myth here, right? If you're in crisis, then how do you, how do you come out of it? By, by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps you know, by, uh, by, uh, by showing that you've got the goods to, uh, to, uh, to forge your way forward, to forge your will in such a way that uh, you change the circumstances of your life. Well, that sounds great. Looks great uh, when Clint Eastwood does it, you know. Uh, but, uh, but is that really uh, what it's like to be a man in the world, right? Well, and finally, I want to say that, that God has given each other given us one another. Uh, the, the third thing that I found was the body of Christ. The body of Christ can be a matrix of healing in our lives. Matrix in Latin means womb, right? Mater is the root. The matrix is the womb, right? Uh, and, and the church can be like a womb of restoration for us, especially those dear Christian friends and family who come around us and love us back to life. And that's what I experienced. And that's why I became, <laughs> decided to, be, to become a priest, um, was that love of the church. I know I'm going a little long here, so I'll try to wrap up. Uh, do, am, I, am I okay? I'm okay, good. Okay. Um, 
So in our culture of self-sufficiency, again, we're, we're called, we, we think we got to do this on our own, but the gospel gives us a different narrative, right? That we are members of Christ's body, that we are members of God's family, and that our brothers and sisters in Christ are one of the ways, one of the chief ways, that our Lord Jesus loves us back to life. I had friends who would just sit with me while I wept, and they would say nothing. Unlike Job's friends, they just kept their mouths shut. <laughs> None of them said, God must have a reason for making you go through all this. You know, that's, that's definitely not something you want to say to someone who's in crisis. Uh, whatever your theology may be, even if you believe that, and, and we, can, we could argue about that, but we won't, um, uh, don't say it when the person's in the midst of loss and grief. Uh, we need friendships in Christ that we can rely on, especially in these times of grief and loss. And, and in my experience, as we set aside our fear and entrust our lives to God, we can even sometimes find slowly and surely that God can use our experiences of loss uh, as a means of sharing his love and compassion with others. And this has been true in my life. Um, Time and again, I've been able, because of what I went through, to then turn around and, uh, and, and help someone else who's been through, is, who's going through great grief and loss in their lives. This is part of the beauty of it, right? Uh, like paying it forward. Somebody helped me go through that and helped me recover from it. Now I'm equipped to also come alongside a brother or sister and do the same thing for them. Um, so... Just to close, and then I want to open this up for Q&A, right? And whatever you want to talk about. Um, there are two postures we really have. We have really have two choices. We can, in response to the grief and loss in our lives, we can turn inward. We can turn inward upon ourselves. Ultimately, I think that will lead to our own undoing. Uh, maybe sooner, maybe later, right? Maybe long term, maybe short term. But it's not going to be a sustainable way to live, uh, ultimately or to turn outward, to face into the grief and loss we've been given, to move forward through the valley of the shadow of death, right? With Jesus uh, as our good shepherd. So I'm gonna stop there. Um, a lot there, uh, heavy duty stuff, <laughs> uh, but I wanna hear your thoughts or, or additional comments. If you want to talk about your experiences, totally, uh, totally good, or just reflections or questions. And Joel, would you mind repeating into the mic so that I can hear what the question or comment is? Sure, I will repeat. Well, that maybe there's nothing left to say. Maybe I've perfectly summarized. Yeah. So the question is uh, about job loss and how to uh, think about that. I only speak out of my own experience and, and some friends. I left a job uh, that I knew I needed to leave. It was a great job, but it wasn't a good fit. And even though uh, I knew it was the right thing to do, I 
still really keenly felt the loss of that. And I went, uh, and, and then I was also without a job for a couple of years. That didn't help either. And so I got very depressed and was frustrated and angry. Um, I would think this is a, and maybe we have other wisdom from the group here, so don't be shy. Um, I, I think part of it is, again, when you lose something like that, you lose a part of yourself. So the question is, is there another new season, right? New investment of his energies in a new season of life, right? Um, that can, can, in a different way, but maybe in similar ways, bring similar kinds of satisfaction? Or has he, does he have a skill set now that comes from this job that he can use on a volunteer basis in the context of church or mission, right? I think that's really important. There's this refined set of skills you've developed after four decades of work, right? Are you going to just throw that all away? I mean, that could benefit an incredible number of people in a variety of ways. Um, you know, I was reading a book that talked about a guy who was a paper chemist, right? <laughs> and he retired, but he had all these incredibly niche skills, right, as a, as a paper chemist. Well, he found this mission that was all focused on paper products, and he, it was out of India, and he went and he became their, their kind of your guru, and it was incredibly rewarding to, to this guy, right? Is there something analogous? That, yeah. Um, that, that would be my, my initial thought, anyway. Yeah, Sean. How would you contrast the state that you might have been in at 25, where you were taking life for granted and things were going great, and your life now, where yeah. you had that experience, yeah. another tragedy could happen, right. as they say. Where does the, it isn't, I know you're not saying we're going to become stoics by having faith in Jesus or putting our, our casting our sorrow yeah. down, but there's still integrating the pain of it, of life is still a blessing. So is your question, uh, what if I had been older when I went through it, or what if I went through it again now? What if I went through it again now? Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a tough one. Um, on my better days, I think I've, I've got the resources to survive it, and I, and I, and I think I do. Um, but there have been times where I've said to the Lord, if you let this happen to me again, uh, then I'm done with you. Now, and I, you know, I, I was pretty serious, um, uh, especially, honestly, at those times when my wife hadn't called me and it was 45 minutes in and I didn't know where she was and she wasn't picking up and I couldn't stop perseverating about her being dead, right? I mean, it really is, uh, I, it's full-blown PTSD uh, at those moments for me. So um, uh, those are the moments where I've said that. Right, so, but in my more, you know, uh, balanced moments, I think I, I, think I, I would survive it, yeah. I, I, I think I've got a, a perspective on it now, and the, the fact is these things could happen to any one of us at any moment on any given day, right? That's just reality. Yeah, Charlie. If I may add to that, Sean, I have told Marilyn that I will die first. I will not go through <laughs> In all seriousness, the pain that Joel just described 
is the pain that I went through in the death of my first wife. And it is so profoundly disorienting. It's so profoundly crafted everything that I had in the way of confidence and faith. And the pain lasted so long. Your timeline and mine are perfect. And you said there's a hole. I had a hole in my body, a hole in my spirit. It is so... It, I, I, I have said to Marilyn in jest, and I have said to Marilyn very seriously, I could not live. I can't, without Christ, I could never live through another death of a spouse. Yeah. So I know I can do it with Christ, but I don't want to go through it. Uh, I yeah. don't. So it's there. Thanks, Charlie. Todd. So how do you work that wound out now in, your, in this relationship with your wife? You're carrying this wound. This, yeah. You know, yeah. it's on, probably on her nerves. i got to tell him everywhere I am all the time. So he's going to freak out at me. You know, um, not, maybe not that bad, but, but she obviously has to understand that you have to yeah. communicate that with her. You take yeah. that wound into this new relationship. How do you balance that? Yeah, I hear you, Todd. How do you, how do you, and this is true, I think, you know, the changeable being changed. I think this is true by analogy with any number of kinds of loss. So uh, Todd's question is, uh, how do you take that grief you've suffered into a new relationship, especially if it's a loss either of a, part, of a partner through death or, or you know, estrangement? Um, I think on the one hand, you have to be honest about it, and there has to be clear understanding that even though your partner may not understand be able personally to understand what you're going through, at least know that you're going through it and accept that. But on the other hand, uh, a respect for your spouse's well-being such that you're not imposing that grief on her in a way that's going to be unhelpful for her, as if she's expected to bear the burden of your loss. And that's what I've found with Karen. I There are times when I've talked openly with her. Uh, the few times where I really did decompensate, I just had to have a very clear conversation. Say, listen, honey, you just, you cannot do that. You, you must, if you're running late, you've got to let me know. And that's embarrassing to me, it really is, um, to have to say that. On the other hand, I just know my limitations. You know, St. Eastwood says, a man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> that applies to any number of things, right? And, I, and part of it is learning, that, yeah, I, I am not capable of, of managing that. And so I need her to help me with that. So my guess is uh, that if there are ways, analogous ways in which something arises that's gonna trigger a response that's evoked, that evokes that old loss and grief, your partner needs to know what those are, right? And to do their best to to try to love you by respecting those boundaries. Is that helpful? Yeah, no, that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So can you deal with your perspective and the loss of people that around you? Well, I, I'm not afraid to enter into that space with other people. Yeah. Oh the question is question is how do uh, how do having experienced the sort of thing that I went through or we might have all gone through 
how do we then engage or relate to those around us who are also going through similar difficulties? So I think if we haven't come to terms with the loss in our lives, right, if we haven't actually done the hard work of facing into it and, and you know, you, you, no one does it perfectly, but at least to a substantial degree, reconciling that loss in our lives and incorporating it into our lives, as opposed to it still continuing to really, uh, well, what, what's a good analogy? Be a seeping wound, right? As opposed to scar tissue. Maybe that's one way to put it. Uh, then those chances are that other people going through uh, similar things, that's gonna be hard for us to deal with and we're gonna wanna withdraw because their loss is triggering our, our grief, right? So one of my colleagues, dear Martha Giltonen, was dying of cancer. And I realized that I had been delaying going and visiting her in the hospital. And I didn't even know it. I didn't even realize I'd been doing it. And then it, it occurred to me, you know, she was in Shadyside Hospital. I live in Edgewood. All our other colleagues are in Ambridge or in Beaver or wherever, right? And I'm literally 10 minutes from her, but I was the last of my colleagues to visit her in the hospital before she died because her dying was just, I loved her. Yeah, that, that sorry. Uh, she, was, she was insane and we all loved her. I mean, she, she was an incredible person and, uh, and, uh, and yet she was amazing. And uh, so, sorry. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I think a lot, you, know, you do have to know your limitations. And it, so, uh, so if, if this, if you find that you're in a context where that's, really pushing your buttons, I think you have to, you know, even though it may not be ideal, you may have to acknowledge what you're capable of doing, right? Uh, what I found in most contexts, like I've been in palliative care situations, people in hospice, and I found that what I went through actually really equipped me to better engage their, their uh, um, but there have been other situations. If it's been somebody too close to me, like Martha was, then then I I, I really struggled with it. Charlie. Yeah, I, when I, I started grief counseling right after my wife died, and I learned something valuable: real men cry. Yeah. I went through one towel an hour for about the first eight months just crying in the And so my answer would be, I said, cry with. Well, sure. Yeah. Folks that told me, get over it. Start to move on with your life. They're no longer in my life. I couldn't. I begged them to stop saying that. I would beg them. They wouldn't. They couldn't deal with my pain, and that's how they tried. They're not in my life anymore. Yeah. Cry with them. Hug them. Just be quiet with them. Walk with them. Uh, yeah. Those are the people who are. Who I'm so tied to now, I have such a love for. Did that answer your question? Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 
I do think, uh, yeah, weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. That's the command of the Lord. Yeah. One more question, yeah, Grant. I'm, I'm wondering if one of the problems there is, is that uh, is the shame. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Grief and loss are things we go through. That's good. Shame is about who we are. That's good. To, yeah. To display our grief openly, especially men, but to, yeah. to display grief openly may imply there's something wrong with me. Yes. So the, the question is, what about shame? And that's a great point. I'm going to include that in my emotional responses next time. Uh, for some men especially to show weakness uh, in this way um, can make them feel humiliated or ashamed of themselves. Um, even, if, even if they know that they should, you know, even if they'd consciously know that they shouldn't, they're still... Part of it's natural, I think you feel there's this vulnerability you're displaying, right? And um, if you don't feel like you're in a safe context where people can accept your vulnerability, then, then, then shame would be a natural response. But, uh, uh, so in Genesis it talks about Adam and Eve being naked and unashamed. Well, there's a kind of a nakedness, right, that we display in those moments where, and, and, and that means we need to be able to know that we're with someone we can actually be intimate with emotionally. And don't get me wrong, intimate in the general sense, right? We can be open to and trust that they're going to. Um, so I, I would connect the shame with trust. You know, does this person feel that there's any context that they can trust uh, of any kind? Some men don't feel like there's any context in which they can do that without feeling ashamed, right? But I think, you know, for those of us in the body, I would hope that that's not true, that, that, or that there's at least a couple people. And if not, then I think this is something we need to, to, to actually address as Christian brothers in a, in a church, that we can actually have uh, context where people can, can be open about this and not feel ashamed. Right? Is that it? Well, Father Joel uh, has given us. I wrote a prayer to conclude. With. Oh, oh yes. No, you, you can say it. I'll say it. Oh, good. You can pour, man. Oh no, you're, I don't want to interrupt you. Go ahead. Why are you? <laughs> Father Joel has. <laughs> Father Joel is going to finish the time in a in a prayer. Okay. <laughs> I thought he might have something else to say. I do. <laughs> Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the good shepherd who goes before us through the valley of the shadow of death. You are the suffering servant who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You are the great high priest who has been tested in every way that we are. Look with compassion, we pray, upon the suffering of your people. Draw near to us in our times of trial. Grant us the grace to endure them with hope and courage and use them by your spirit to conform us to your image, to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen.